morning, friends. And Merry Christmas. Yeah. Um, I appreciate all of you who are asking me how my uh, family's doing. And um, I'll tell you that with my dad's condition, he gets a little bit better every day. It's going to take a lot of those days for those little bits to add up. And um, for my family, it's, it's sort of like... Um, we're creating new traditions, like Festivus. We, um, the new tradition in our family tomorrow will begin, and it's called Take Father to Get an Echocardiogram. And, <laughs> but I would appreciate your prayers. That's a test that they've asked for. Uh, not exactly routine, but they want to make sure that um, everything's doing okay. There's been a few things they've been concerned about. But we appreciate all your prayers and support, and we do feel blessed. Um, if you've ever sold anything as is, then you, you understand this little phrase. If you've ever bought anything and it says on the bill of sale, as is, then you understand this two-word phrase, just four letters. And you know that there's a lot packed into those four letters. I've sold stuff as is, not trying to hide anything, but just saying, look, this car, this truck has had a long, good life. The wheels could fall off of it when you're driving out of here, but I'm not going to be responsible. It's up to you to handle that. And maybe you've bought something as is, and you've worried that well, what are they hiding from me? What are they not saying? Because we want guarantees. As is, has no guarantee except the guarantee of reality. That what you have there is everything that you're going to get. There's nothing hidden. It just is as it is. This phrase, as is, shows up in a uh, prayer that's very familiar to most of us called the serenity prayer. The serenity prayer, I'm learning, is misnamed. It's really not the serenity prayer. It ought to be called the serenity courage wisdom prayer. Because the God grant me at the beginning is not just for serenity. Um, it's... For a lot of things, we need serenity specifically for those things that we cannot change. That in our as-is world, there's some things that we have, we have no way of changing it. So we need peace. We need a serenity that deals with that. But there's some things that you and I can change. If I sell something as-is, but I know there's something wrong with it and I don't tell people... I need courage to tell the truth. That's the other part of this prayer. Grant me the courage to change those things that I can change. Sometimes God is calling us not to just sit back and say serenity now and accept that everything is going to be okay, but sometimes he wants us to have the courage to do something, to make a difference, to change. But it takes that wisdom to know the difference between what are the things that we should change and what are the things that we need to accept. Now, this is about all of the serenity prayer that any of us really know, that most of us really know. And you'll see this if you go and you buy a poster or a, um, 
Maybe you've got a gift for somebody that's a little um, plaque or something like that or a cross stitch of the serenity prayer. This is what you're going to get, this part right here. This prayer, it's, it's biblical, but it's not scriptural. Does that make sense? It's biblical in nature, but you're not going to find it in scripture. It's written by a theologian in the 20th century, a theologian and pastor named Reinhold Niebuhr. And he was trying to um, uh, write a 20th century prayer, and I, th- I think he nailed it. And, uh, and its use in different groups and in different settings proves how popular it is, probably because it speaks to the as-is reality that we live in. The prayer continues, though, in its longer version. And the next line says, Taking as Jesus did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. I don't know if that's actually the next line, but it's in there. It's, it, there's, there's two more sections. And this section is the one that I want us to focus on this morning. Taking as Jesus did this sinful world as is. As it is, not as I would have it. When we tell the story of the birth of Christ, and you've got three ways to tell it. You can tell it Luke's way, with all the fanfare and the angels and the shepherds, heaven busting open with the birth announcement of Jesus, or you can tell it Matthew's way, which we will this morning, where it's a little more grim, a little more scary. Or you can tell it John's way, which is so conceptual and theological that he just says, the light came into the darkness. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. But it was light that came into the darkness. All of them have the same idea that Jesus is born into a world that is not the way God wanted it. That Jesus is born into a sinful world. And I wonder if we ever, if that ever dawns on us. Because we, we can make the Christmas story so sentimental and so sweet that we forget that Jesus is born into chaos. Jesus is born into a broken, torn up world. Now, you and I never have to go very far to be reminded that the world that we live in today is sinful. Now, unless you've sworn off the news for the holiday season, they're always going to, you know, pull the twist on you somewhere that just when you thought the news was good, they're going to remind you that there's something bad out there. Hey, here are the hottest toys. Here's what everybody's getting for Christmas, but doesn't look like Santa's bringing us a good economy. Thanks. don't understand it the the news they're they're like those downer people that we bring into our lives who everything has a they just throw shade over everything i love that new phrase they throw shade over everything nothing can be good but we know it whether they tell us or not we know it and things aren't always the way we think it should be either but i want to show you from matthew's gospel That Jesus was born into a world that was broken and sinful. And for that, we need to go to Matthew chapter 2. Oddly enough, it's the story that we call the story of that star of Bethlehem. 
the Christmas star story that there's, there's nothing more perfect than the star here because the star stands out in the darkness. And there's a lot of darkness in Matthew 22 as well. I just want to read this, and I want to ask you to listen. This is from Eugene Peterson's translation. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem village in Judah territory, this was during Herod's kingship, a band of scholars arrived in Jerusalem from the east, and they asked around, where can we find and pay homage to the newborn king of the Jews? We observed a star in the eastern sky that signaled his birth. We're on pilgrimage to worship him. When word of their inquiry got to Herod, he was terrified. And not Herod alone, but most of Jerusalem as well. Herod lost no time. He gathered all the high priests, all the religion scholars in the city together, and he asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? They told him, Bethlehem, Judah territory. The prophet Micah wrote about it plainly, saying, It's you, Bethlehem and Judah's land, no longer bringing up the rear. From you will come the leader who will shepherd rule my people, my Israel. Herod then arranged a a secret meeting with the scholars from the east. Pretending to be as devout as they were, he got them to tell him exactly when the birth announcement star appeared. Then he told them about the prophecy about Bethlehem and he said, Go find this child. Leave no stone unturned, and as soon as you find him, send word, and I'll I'll join you at once in your worship. Instructed by the king, they set off, then the star appeared again, the same star that they had seen in the eastern skies, and it led them on until it hovered over the place of the child. They could hardly contain themselves. They were in the right place. They had arrived at the right time. They entered the house and they saw the child in the arms of Mary, his mother. And overcome, they kneeled and worshipped him. And then they opened up their luggage and they presented gifts. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. Now in a dream, they were warned not to report back to Herod. So they worked out another route. They left the territory without being seen. Then they returned to their own country. After the scholars were gone, God's angel showed up again in Joseph's dream and commanded him, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Stay there until further notice. Herod is on the hunt for this child and wants to kill him. Joseph obeyed. He got up, took the child and his mother, and under the cover of darkness, they were out of town and they were well on their way by daylight and they lived in Egypt until Herod's death. This Egyptian exile fulfilled what Hosea had preached. I called my son out of Egypt. Herod, when he realized that the scholars had tricked him, flew into a rage. And he commanded the murder of every little boy two years old and under who lived in Bethlehem and its surrounding hills. He determined that age from the information that he had gotten from the scholars from the east. And that's when Jeremiah's sermon was fulfilled. A sound was heard in Ramah, weeping in much lament. Rachel, weeping for her children. Rachel, refusing all solace. Her children gone, dead, and buried. 
Later, when Herod died, God's angel appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, take the child and his mother and return to Israel. All those out to murder the child are dead. Joseph obeyed. He got up, took the child and his mother, re-entered Israel. And when he'd heard, though, that Archelaus has succeeded his father Herod as king in Judea, well, he was afraid to go there. But Joseph was directed, again, in a dream, to go to the hills of Galilee. And on arrival, he settled in the village of Nazareth. And this move was a fulfillment of the prophetic words, He shall be called a Nazarene. And that's Matthew chapter 2. Telling us that in the midst of all of this darkness, hatred, murder, and sin, God's plan could still be carried out. There's a few things I want you to notice. Herod commits unspeakable acts of evil because he is frightened. He's frightened. What is he frightened of? He plots. He schemes. He lies to the wise men from the east. He wants to find the one child. Why? Because he doesn't want his rule threatened. He wants to keep power. You know, I wish that there was a really easy way to find all the villains in the world and just hang them. Just get every Nero and Herod and Hitler and whoever else and just do away with them and then all the rest of us would be happy. But that's me taking this world as I would want it. And the thing is, <laughs> I've, I've learned that there's, it's just not easy to find a villain and be done with them. Did you notice? And, Luke, and Matthew, rather, won't let us away with that either. I mean, you might be reading Matthew, and it's like, why doesn't God just kill Herod? Why doesn't just God just do him in? Because Herod's not the only one frightened enough to do evil. Did you notice a line? I've got to admit to you, church, I didn't notice this until this week. Herod was frightened, and most of Jerusalem as well. Did you notice that? It's right there in Matthew chapter 2. And I'm asking myself, who are the other people that are just as frightened as Herod? His sons, maybe? The royal court? The whole system that had been built up around Herod's empire and his kingdom. You get rid of a Herod, take him out and hang him, and guess what? You just get an Archelaus just as bad. You get rid of an Archelaus, you get somebody just even worse. The wisdom of the serenity prayer that says that Jesus took this sinful world as it is reminds us that the world is not broken down easily into heroes and villains, but it is a busted up system and structure that wraps all of us up into it and corrupts. And just when we think we're on the side of the angels, we might find out that we're on the side of a Herod and we don't even realize it. Especially when we get frightened and we're not in our right mind. Joseph is afraid. Joseph is afraid and he 
in his fear, was about to divorce Mary and leave her without any protection until an angel told him to obey, to take the sinful world as it is, not as he would have it, and just obey. And God rescues because of the obedience of a man who's just as afraid as Herod, maybe even more so. Second thing I want to point out to you, this line about Rachel weeping. Who's Rachel? Rachel's the mother of Israel. So often Israel, and you've got to remember, Israel is called Israel, and that's the name of an individual. That's the name of Jacob. Sometimes it's called, the nation is called Jacob. That Jacob was in the land of Egypt. Joseph was in the land of Egypt. And by saying that one person's name, by reducing the whole nation down to one person, you're saying that it's all because of those single individuals who find themselves there. Here, Matthew is recognizing how sinful and broken the world is. He could have just said all the mothers in Israel were upset and crying, but instead he reduces it down to the one woman who is the symbol, who is the mother of all Israel. He's reduced it down to one woman and her unconsolable crying, and he's calling us to see that pain. Because when we get frightened like Herod, or we get wrapped up in the systems of this world, we can ignore that. If you look up the massacre of the innocents, you'll find this painting. This painting that is here is by a, a French painter of the 19th century. His name is, he deserves recognition because this painting is so powerful. His name is Leon uh, Cognier. And here, the, the massacre of the innocents where Herod orders the death of children, just as if he was the Pharaoh of Egypt at the story of, uh, at, the, at the birth of Moses. I mean, here's Herod, he's supposed to be, the ruler of God's people, and he's acting like the enemy of God's people. That's what fear, that's what sin does to us. And he thinks he's in the right to order that, that he has the power over life and death. But here, instead of just showing people running, and you get from the, from the other side just how horrible it is with all of the massacres going on, but with this one woman and her child hiding in a corner, you look her right in the face and you realize... That every massacre on earth can always be reduced down to one person. To one person and what it does to them. And the world that we live in, part of the sin of the system that we live in is we see things on such a large scale that we say, well, you know, those people don't deserve that. And those people don't deserve this. And these people need to be kept out. And these people need to be... They need to have this, and why can't we just let them take care of themselves? Because it's always those people and them people and those over there and these. But what if you reduce it down to one person? Then you have to hear her cries. You have to hear her weeping. You have to understand that she hurts just like you do. And we have to take that as it is. So part of Jesus... Taking this sinful world as it is means that he doesn't close off his ears and his eyes and his heart to the suffering of individuals. He doesn't agree with it, but he accepts it, and he will not ignore it. 
this sinful world. You know, this morning on um, CBS Sunday morning, they had the story of, of 1968. And the, uh, we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of Apollo 8 orbiting the moon. And this is that famous image called Earthrise, taken by Frank Borman aboard Apollo 8 as they orbited the barren moon. And on Christmas Eve, they read from Genesis that God created the heavens and the earth. They say that in 1968, and by the way, the guys got a telegram, and, and 68 apparently was a very difficult year. I don't, I don't, the only difficulties I had in 1968 was getting my diaper changed on time. But, the, um, but people who remember it remember it was one of those years, again, where you got reminded constantly of how broken and terrible the world is. But the astronauts received a telegram from someone. They said, thank you for saving 1968. This perspective where you can see the earth as, it's not just those people over there and those people over here, but all of us, you realize that the world is this creation of God and there are those who are obedient and there are those who are disobedient and honestly, all of us at some time are obedient or disobedient and we are all suffering because of the brokenness in the world, but we all contribute to it as well. And that's why we have to be willing to surrender, to take the world as it is. Because you and I, no matter how hard we work, are not capable of fixing the world to a point of perfection that there will no longer be problems of sin. In fact, it's usually when we get so arrogant that we leave God out and say we're going to fix the world that we end up breaking it. Because the sin of pride, the sin of, of, of self-justification, those become, those become real problems. I'm just going to offer you something. I didn't make this observation originally, and, and I, I don't intend this to be a, uh, a political statement. I really don't. But at the same time, it's one of those things that we as Christians need to see these things and reflect on what it means for ourselves. Do you remember that when Donald Trump was running for president, they asked him, they said, do you, have you done anything that you think you need to ask forgiveness for? And he goes, no, I don't think so. And one commentator said, you just did. <laughs> the sin of pride, the sin of self-justification. And, and that's, that's, but that happens to us too. I don't care what you think about Trump. I'm caring about us. That sometimes we, we come before God all the time and we think, Oh, you know, the world's broken. If things get better in the world, then I'd be okay. You need to take the world as it is, not as you would have it. Because the world is not going to be better the way you and I want it. But how he wants it. How God wants it. We've got to join him in his work. Later on in the serenity prayer, the prayer that you pray is trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will. Now I'm going to fuss with Niebuhr a little bit on this phrase. And I can do that because this is biblical, but it's not scriptural. I can fuss with him. I, I don't want to read this phrase as conditional. That if I surrender to God, then he's going to make everything all right. No. And in fact, 
I think Niebuhr's gotten it right that he has the order there correct. God makes everything right if I surrender to his will. In other words, he's going to make things right in me when I learn to surrender. That God is able to work in me and work through me when I am able to surrender. In the same way that Joseph obeyed. He surrendered. He trusted the angel. And consider what Joseph was being asked to do. Take the woman as your bride. Because, no, she, she did not commit adultery. She is pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Okay. Most people aren't going to believe that, but I'm going to obey because the angel told me in a dream. Flee, get up, get out of town, go to Egypt. Egypt? Aren't they the enemy? Yeah, but you're going to be better off down there than you are in Herod's land. Okay, I'm going to obey. And then he ends up in Nazareth. You remember that the reputation of Nazareth, does anything good come out of Nazareth? But it fits in. And as Joseph learns to obey, things go right because God can work in him. When you and I are willing to accept this sinful world as is and quit trying to change it to the way it's supposed to be or the way that we want it or the way that we think it's supposed to be or even our imaginary ideas of how good the world used to be or how much better the world could be, but if we will just accept it as is and surrender to God and join him in his redemptive work, then we are becoming more like our Savior, Jesus, who entered into this world, not when it got fixed, but entered into this world so that it could be mended and healed. Would you pray with me? Father, please teach us how to surrender and how to obey you. Father, we want to accept this sinful world as it is, not to agree with it, not to say that it's okay. We grieve with those who grieve. We, we rejoice with those who rejoice. And Father, we know that this world is not as you would have it. It's not what you intended. But Father, part of that, we confess, is our own sinfulness and arrogance that gets in the way of what you would do and can do and have promised to do if we will submit ourselves to you. Teach us to be like your son Jesus, who was so obedient that he was not afraid to surrender himself to the cross and in doing so, trusted you to preserve his life for all eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If there's anyone here today who's suffering and needs support, if there's anyone here today who wants to surrender their life to Jesus, you're going to have elders standing right up here. They're going to be in room 100. Why don't you just respond while we're singing this song?